So two weeks ago, Pastor Jason preached from the end of John chapter 1, and we observed in that text Nathaniel's encounter with the Lord Jesus, and we heard Nathaniel's confession, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Last week, Justin discussed the first four verses of 1 John and the importance of our fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. As fellow believers in the Lord Jesus, we live with eager anticipation in the second coming of Christ, a new heavens, a new earth, a glorified bodies. And this morning, we're going to zoom in to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and we're going to observe a sinful woman's encounter with the Lord Jesus. So if you are able to this morning... Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I am reading from the English Standard Version. And I'll be reading Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36 through verse 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, That's Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 uh, denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That is the reading of God's word this morning. I pray it's a blessing and encouragement to you. You may be seated. Join me in prayer one more time. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your inerrant sufficient, authoritative word, Lord. Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be encouraged this morning from this text, Lord. 
Lord, I pray that um, the Spirit would bring comfort and conviction in areas of our life where those things are needed, Lord God. Lord, we pray that we would humble ourselves under the authority of your word, Lord God. Lord, I pray that uh, if there are any sins that are in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that are rooted up as idols, I pray that we would repent of those, Lord, confess those, and grow in our faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning that our time together would be pleasing and honorable to you, Lord. Please get me out of the way, Lord God. I pray that I am not a distraction to the preaching and teaching of your word. Hide me behind the cross, Lord God, that your name would be lifted up and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we know that Luke is a Gentile. He's a close companion to the Apostle Paul. He was a physician by trade. He's writing this book to the most excellent Theophilus. And, of course, in the Gospels, we know that uh, Jesus is the main character. And the Gospel of Luke is certainly a detailed account concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ and his mission to seek and save the lost. In the first six chapters of Luke, we see Jesus healing the sick. He's exercising demons. He's raising the dead to life, and he's preaching good news in the towns and the synagogues. And word about Jesus is quickly spreading throughout the region. Luke chapter 5, we see Jesus dining with a large group of tax collectors. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling to Jesus' disciples. And they wonder, why is this Jesus? Why is your rabbi eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And he answers them in Luke chapter 5. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to bring good news to the poor the lonely, the lame, the sick, the broken, the sinners, and the outcasts of this world. It is a great message of hope, love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And in our passage this morning, we have three main characters. Jesus, a Pharisee named Simon, and a woman of the city, a sinner. The setting takes place somewhere in the region of Galilee, perhaps in the town of Nain. The Pharisees, as we know, are a highly influential group of Jews. They emphasized a strict adherence to the law, um, to obedience to the law as the means by which one attains righteousness before God and obtains his favor. They were teachers of the law, but also very legalistic and self-righteous. They were guardians of this traditional external religion. And, of course, they looked down upon tax collectors and sinners. In other uh, sections of the Gospels, Luke and Matthew, we see the Pharisees being described as hypocrites for being full of greed and wickedness. For they love the best seats in in the synagogues and the praise from men in the marketplaces. In Matthew 23, Jesus compares the Pharisees and the scribes to whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. 
The Pharisee and the religious leaders of the day were Jesus' primary opponents, and he certainly had some strong words for them throughout his earthly ministry. In verse 36 of our text, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. It was not uncommon in those days uh, for um, a uh, Jew to ask a traveling rabbi or the guest teacher to a Sabbath meal to discuss the theological or cultural issues of the day with the leaders of the community. However, it does seem a bit odd that this Pharisee, one of Jesus' opponents, would invite Jesus to a meal in his house especially since this man is associating with tax collectors and sinners. It seems that the Pharisee likely had some sort of hidden agenda or purpose in doing so, for he is very skeptical of this man. It was not uncommon for these type of meals to have an open-door policy, meaning that if you did not have an invitation to eat, the people of the community could come to the house They could stand around the perimeter of the room to observe and listen in on the conversation that was taking place between the visiting rabbi and the religious leaders who, again, are discussing or debating theological and social issues of the day. This type of meeting or gathering may be similar to what we may see in a city council meeting or a school board meeting in our day. The city officials or school officials are sitting up near the front of the room, and the general public is typically invited to attend an open session in which they can interact with the city officials and ask questions or provide feedback regarding city or school district concerns. In the first century context, however, it seems that the people standing around the perimeter of the room, they're simply there as spectators, not participating in the actual discussion. So in verse 37. The text reads, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, and she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. When we see this word behold in the scriptures, this usually indicates that something uh, important or profound is about to take place, and in some cases even shocking. And I think what Luke records here is certainly a profound or shocking part of the story. This woman, she is unnamed, she's identified as a sinner. And this label, of course, in those days certainly carried with it negative connotations. Not only is she socially shunned by the people of the community, the text says her sins are many and her sins are publicly known throughout the city. So the sinful woman, she learns that Jesus is reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. In those days, you were in a reclining position to eat usually with your feet directed away from the table. They, do, they did not eat at a table with chairs as we do today. First century roads were not paved, and so they were usually dusty or muddy, and it was preferred that your dirty, stinky feet were directed away from the table. The alabaster flask of ointment or perfume 
as it is stated in the New American Standard Bible, indicates that the jar or flask is likely very valuable and precious. Alabaster was considered an expensive stone that was typically quarried in Egypt during those days. Some commentators think that perhaps this woman is a prostitute since perfume was a trademark for uh, women of prostitution. However, uh, the perfume, I think, also was somewhat common for women in general and certainly for women who are not prostitutes. So even though it may be possible that she is a prostitute, the text here does not explicitly identify her as one. From the text, we know she is labeled as a sinner and her sins are publicly known. So standing at the feet of Jesus, she is overcome with emotion. She's weeping. She wets his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with the hair of her head and kisses his feet and anoints his feet with ointment. According to John MacArthur in his commentary, her tears are like a steady flow of continuous rain. And that culture, washing the feet of another person was considered degrading, something done by only the lowliest of slaves. And it may have been considered indecent here, perhaps even immoral for a Jewish woman to let her hair down. But she was overcome with emotion. And we see the tears of gratitude, the tears of joy, and perhaps even tears of remorse and sorrow. They are soaking and saturating the feet of Jesus. The kissing of his feet seems to be a striking expression of affection and thankfulness. Luke uses the same Greek word in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. When the father... He's anticipating his son to return from home. He sees him at a distance. He runs to him. He embraces him and he kissed him. So the kissing here of the feet of Jesus is a beautiful, wonderful expression of affection for the son of God. In Bible times, uh, people were anointed with oil to signify God's blessing or call on that person's life. A person was typically anointed for a special purpose, to be a king or a prophet or a priest. In other examples in the scriptures, we see the anointing of oil was used for healing the sick. In this context, the anointment of the ointment or the perfume may have been simply a gesture of respect or common courtesy, sometimes paid by a host to his guest. But it seems reasonable here to conclude that the sinful woman is going above and beyond the normal gesture of common courtesy. At this point in the text, this scene here, um, I think the room is silent. I think the talking stops, the eating stops. All the attention and focus from the leaders and the spectators in the room, it is centered on this woman and Jesus. I mean, can you imagine some of the thoughts that may be swirling around in these spectators' minds of the first century Jew? Who does this woman think she is? She must be outside of her mind. How dare she barge in here 
and interrupt an important meal. Isn't somebody going to address this nonsense? I mean, she is a sinner. She is unclean and she is touching the feet of the guest of honor. It is likely that she is certainly crossing a few social and cultural boundaries with her actions. She's considered unclean, and there was a process in that day to be made clean. And the washing of the feet of Jesus is probably not found in the playbook for being made clean. So what is Jesus going to do here? What is the Pharisee going to do? How is Jesus going to respond to this woman's unorthodox approach? Verse 39 reads, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers, say it, teacher. Now, Simon, the Pharisee, seems to receive some sort of confirmation or proof here that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. Because if he were a prophet, then he would have known what Simon himself already knew about the woman. It seems that Simon is likely disgusted or satisfied by the scene. He was witnessing because it confirmed his belief or suspicion that Jesus was not a true prophet at all. Since, of course, Jesus did not realize the obvious fact that this woman was a sinner. So for no sensible religious teacher or prophet would allow such a woman to touch him. As you can see from these two verses, the irony here starts to surface. Simon assumes that Jesus does not know the history or character of this woman. And therefore, he reasons that Jesus is not a true prophet. But of course, Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of Simon's heart, even though he did not verbalize his critique. And and of course, Jesus certainly knows the history and character of this woman prior to this encounter. The sinful woman, an outcast, a sinner, she seems to know exactly who Jesus is. And yet the Pharisee, a teacher of the law of God, he fails to understand that the promised Messiah, the one whom the law and the prophets point to, is right before him. Verse 40, Jesus answers Simon by by stating, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replies, say it teacher. At this point, the tension or the awkwardness in the room may be on the rise. I think, again, the room is dead quiet. Everyone is focused on Jesus and the woman and the Pharisee. And of course, Jesus Jesus speaks to Simon and says, I have something to say to you. You kind of get the sense here that uh, Simon is about to get schooled or disciplined by the schoolmaster for his errant thinking. And the response by Simon seems a bit interesting or odd. I'm not sure about this, but there may be a bit of pride or arrogance coming from the Pharisee's response. It it seems as, as, as if he says, sure, you can go ahead and respond, but don't think you're going to tell me something I do not already know. 
The response seems a bit snarky or abrupt, but Simon does address Jesus as teacher here. So there seems to be at least some mild respect extended to him. And it's possible that Simon the Pharisee is simply suggesting or acknowledging Jesus' statement and saying, you may go on with your intended lesson or discourse. So in verse 41, Jesus states, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus, our great teacher, in typical fashion here, is using a simple parable to communicate a point or principle to Simon. We have a moneylender, which is an individual who is loaning a particular amount of money to another person with the intention that the borrower would pay back the amount borrowed. 500 denarii was about a year and a half's wages for the common laborer in those days. 50 denarii, about two months' wages. Neither of them could pay the debt they owed, but the money lender extends mercy and grace and cancels or forgives the debt of both. Perhaps we can frame this in in a modern illustration, since we do not typically think in terms of denarii. Let's suppose we have two debtors and an individual with a car loan and another individual with a home mortgage. We could say the money lender would be our local bank or credit union. And let's say the car loan is for 30000 and the home mortgage is for 300000 Ten times the amount of the car loan, just like we see in the example in the text. In both examples, the two debts differ dramatically. One debt is much greater than the other. So, Jesus asked Simon a simple question. Of the two debtors, which one will love the money lender the most? Simon answers correctly by stating the debtor with the larger debt. And Jesus says to Simon, you have judged rightly. So if we think about our contemporary example, right? Which debtor will love and appreciate the money lender the most? The individual who owes 30000 or the individual who owes 300000 Of course, it is the one with the greater debt, just like in the biblical text. So the principle or point of the parable is that the individual with the larger canceled debt will show or demonstrate a greater love and a greater thankfulness for the one who has canceled the debt rather than the individual with the smaller debt. So. If we have a main point for our sermon this morning, this is the main point. Great love, great devotion, great gratitude originates or stems from the canceling or the forgiveness of a large debt. So this morning, I think we need to pause and we need to consider this question. Do you recognize and realize the depth of your sin? 
before a holy and just and righteous God. There's no measuring, measuring line long enough to measure the depth of our sin. The distance to the moon or the depth of the deepest part of the sea. They're not deep enough to measure our sin debt before a holy, infinite, just, and righteous God. And it does not matter if you have broken one of God's commandments or whether you have broken all ten of His commandments. Your sins, my sins, they're just as wicked and unholy as the sins of the prostitute, the mass murderer, and the child molester. Our sins, even if we have not committed murder, are no better than the sins of the mass murderer or rapist. Our sins are equally offensive to a holy and righteous God, and we deserve His wrath and condemnation. Our sin debt is so great that we could never pay for or atone for our sins against a righteous, holy God. In fact, our sin debt is an infinite debt that requires an infinite, eternal punishment. If you have recognized your sin debt, do you recognize your need for a divine Savior? I think we can conclude that the sinful woman in our text this morning, she certainly recognizes not only her sin debt before God, but she recognized her desperate need for a Savior, for a great physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, those who are sin sick to repentance. The Pharisee, of course, here does not recognize his sin debt before God because he's trusting in his own works and righteousness. He's blinded by his pride and he fails to see his need for a savior. Verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So we see Jesus here applying the principle from the parable to the woman and Simon by contrasting the display of love and gratitude from the woman To Simon's lack of hospitality or lack of action towards the guest of honor. In those days, a greeting of a kiss was likely expected from the host to the guest of honor. Simon fails to do even this simple act of courtesy. The greeting of a kiss was a sign of friendship acceptance and respect. Jesus points out to Simon that he failed to anoint his head with oil. The sinful woman, she uses a valuable and expensive ointment or perfume to anoint his feet. And Simon does not even use the more common olive oil to anoint his head. Uh, The uh, anointment of oil and the foot washing, according to some commentaries, may not have been required for all guests of honor. But for whatever reason, Simon fails to provide 
oil and water for the guest of honor. It's likely that Simon the Pharisee does not think or believe that Jesus is worthy of these things. Since Simon is already skeptical and suspicious of the person of Jesus. The washing of the feet by the sinful woman certainly is a beautiful display of worship. And it seems extraordinary in this particular setting. It is a beautiful demonstration of love, thankfulness, worship to the God-man who had canceled or forgiven all of her past, present, and future sins. Again, the principle or main point is that great love, great adoration, great obedience stems or originates from the cancellation of a debt that we could never pay. In our text this morning, we're contrasting the actions of the Pharisees, the action of Simon the Pharisee, and the actions of the sinful woman. So let us consider for a moment a couple of questions. In our, in our times of Bible study, I think it's important to think and examine the thinking or theology of some of the Bible characters that we are studying. So, how would you compare, knowing what you know about the text this morning, how would you compare the thinking or beliefs of these two individuals? If you could describe the thinking or beliefs of the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee in regards to the person of Jesus, how would you describe their thinking or beliefs, knowing what you know about their recent actions and behaviors towards Jesus. I certainly believe that our external behavior, our speech, our conduct, our responses to situations and circumstances that we face in a fallen, broken, sinful world certainly can indicate or reveal what we truly believe and think from the heart. If we are pressed in by situations and circumstances that we face in our lives, our theology, our doctrine will be exposed. It will be squeezed. If we are to compare our descriptions, I think we would see a difference between the thinking and the beliefs of the sinful woman and the Pharisee, just as we see a difference in their actions towards him from our text this morning. Our thinking, our theology, our doctrine certainly drives and influences our behavior. Theology is very much practical. And to fully understand the doctrine of sin, to fully grasp the depth of our sin, we need to start with a diligent study and proper th- uh, theology of the triune God. Verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the New American Standard Bible renders verse 47 in this way. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Now, why is this important to consider? We need to understand that this woman was in a state or condition of forgiveness prior to this encounter with the Lord Jesus. The temptation in verse, uh, verses 47 and 48 is to wrongly conclude that her sins are forgiven based on her recent actions toward Jesus. To make this conclusion would certainly nullify or cancel the whole point of the parable. Which debtor will love the moneylender the most? It is the debtor with the larger debt. The canceled debt must take place first. Then springs forth the love, the adoration, the worship of the one who canceled the debt. The forgiveness of the debt is the cause. The love, the worship, the gratitude is the result or effect of the original cause. Again, the principle or point of the parable is that great love, great affection, great thankfulness stems from great forgiveness. So the actions of the sinful woman are a result, an outcome of the forgiveness that was already granted to her prior to this encounter. For Jesus says regarding the sinful woman, for she loved much. Well, why did she love much? Because she was forgiven much. Verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. For the first century Jew, only God forgives sins. So, of course, this claim does not go unnoticed as the religious leaders in the room are contemplating this bold statement from Jesus. Right? Who is this man? This man from Nazareth who claims to forgive people of their sins. Jesus, as he does in Luke chapter 5, before he heals the paralytic, is revealing his identity and his divinity by saying to his opponents, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one whom the law and the prophets spoke of many, many years ago. Your sins are forgiven. What great news this is for the individual, for those of us who have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if there is any encouragement from this morning's message, know and believe that all your past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. They have been paid for. Colossians 2, and you, believer, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record and debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross.
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Verse 50, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice here that he does not say your good works have saved you. Nor does he say your wonderful display of worship saved you. Good deeds or good works are the result or evidence of your faith and trust in the person and work of Christ. Good deeds are the evidence of that inward change of repentance and belief. That God work where God has removed hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh. Jesus Christ, his life, his death, His resurrection is the foundation or basis for our salvation. The Apostle Paul states in Galatians, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We are justified through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Non-believer, how are you going to respond to this wonderful offer of forgiveness from God the Father? For you, O Lord God, you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon your name. Psalm 86. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Non-believer, you must recognize your sin debt against the holy, just and righteous God. You need to respond by repenting of your sin, turning from your wickedness, and placing your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. You can never pay for or atone for your immeasurable sin debt against the Lord. Now is the day of salvation, as Paul states in 2 Corinthians. We urge you, we plead with you to repent and believe in the gospel message. Do not delay, for tomorrow may never come. Fellow believer, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you realize this insurmountable debt that has been canceled by the grace and mercy of God through faith in God the Son? Which debtor will love the moneylender the most? Great love, great devotion, great worship, great thankfulness stems from a canceled or forgiven debt. In what areas of your life are you going to change in light of this great gospel truth? How is your daily worship of the triune God going to be affected? How is your worship going to change in the home and in the workplace? How is your relationship with others, your spouse, your children going to be impacted by this great truth? 
Perhaps there's some adjustments that you need to make in your behavior, your speech, or your attitude or perspective. I think it's proper here to be reminded that faith without works is dead. It is useless, as James talks about. Let us be reminded that good deeds or good works are the evidence of our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called not only to be hearers of the word, but we are called to be doers of the word. Do not underestimate the level of influence that our actions can have on the life of the non-believer and the life of a fellow believer. Actions certainly do speak louder than words. And in our passage this morning, the sinful woman, she did not speak a word. Her love, her devotion, her gratitude for the good news of the gospel was displayed in and through her actions. May the gospel this morning propel and influence us to change, to growth in Christlikeness. May we strive to show our love and our devotion and our thankfulness for the Savior by practicing and obeying the great commission and the great commandments in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord God. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to respond in faithfulness and obedience, Lord God. Help us to be the salt and the light of the world, Lord God. Help us to display your love and your grace and your mercy uh, to the world, Lord, so that your name is lifted up and glorified. Lord, give us strength, give us wisdom, give us courage, perseverance to go and to make disciples, to advance your kingdom here in our neighborhood and throughout the Peoria area, Lord God. Lord, if there are any sins, any idols in our hearts that we need to confess, Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would confess and repent of our idols, Lord, that we would renew our faith and our trust in you, Lord. Give us the strength, Lord, to confess. Give us the strength to make changes, Lord, in our, in our lives so that we can bear fruit as we abide in you, Lord God. You are the true vine. Lord. Lord, we thank you for our time together, Lord. Help us today to please you in every situation and circumstance and to glorify you. Whatever we're doing, whether we eat or drink, we do all things to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.